Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels, the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Good afternoon. And this place is like teeming with babies right now. Um, we got all these new babies in here, uh, the Lazats. I think this is your first Sunday back, right? Right, since baby, welcome back home. Um, baby River, we got the posts, and um, I, I don't think we announced this last week, but the uh, the Dodds, Mark and Megan Dodd, had their um, had their baby uh, just uh, what like a week and a half ago. They haven't been able to make it back yet, but um, man, we praise God for um, growing our church one way or another. So um, we're thankful. Uh, I recently had lunch uh, with a group of pastors from the area, and uh, somewhere along the course of our conversation, uh, one of them uh, asked me what I was currently preaching through right now. And of course, I said, you know, we're we're going through this this teaching series in the book of Revelation. Uh, And they all give me this look, and one of them goes like, man, that's brave, right? Uh, And we just kind of laughed about it. And I think the reason that, that, that they laughed about it and we were laughing about it is because Revelation can be a confusing book. Right? It can be a confusing book because it's 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 mysterious. There's all these different numbers you gotta keep track of, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the hundred and forty-four thousand that are saved, the mark of the beast, six six six, right? And you gotta know the different significance of those numbers uh, if you want to interpret the book rightly. And there's also a lot of imagery, right? Like we mentioned the trumpets and, and the seals, we saw the horsemen. Later there's gonna be like a dragon, uh, a uh, and we talked about how Jesus is pictured as, as a lion and a lamb. And we're kind of in the middle of that section right now where all of that stuff starts to show up, right? And, it, and this is part of like what really kind of, kind of frustrates me and peeves me with how people will take the book of Revelation and, and sort of co-opt it for their, their own uh, sort of cultural purposes, Right? They'll co-opt the purpose of this book to try and make sense of current events, right? Like they'll they'll look at current events and be like, oh, we see this in the book of Revelation, and oh, we saw we saw that in the book of Revelation too. Um, but that's not the point. And we've said this before, right? Like that's not the point of the book. And it frustrates me because when, when people do that, um, what ends up happening is, is, is some people, some of us, they start treating the, the book of Revelation as something that's like, like maybe too scary or, or too hard to understand or really get anything out of. And so uh, we, we treat it like it's something that should be avoided. Let me tell you what I told uh, my, my pastor friend the other day when, when we were having this discussion around the table. I said, look, the reason that I think that this book is so timely, not just for our church, but for our cultural moment, the reason that I think the book of Revelation is important for us right now is that when you dig deep into each of its passages, 
When you actually do the work of seeking to understand these scriptures, which is what we've been doing over the last several weeks, what you see is that in the book of Revelation, we're getting a picture of what we call ultimate reality. Right? Revelation, probably more than any other uh, New Testament book, gives us a picture of what we might call ultimate reality. And when I say ultimate reality, what I'm talking about is, is what is it that's really happening in the world? What is it that's really been going on throughout history? What is really happening in the heavens and on the earth? What in the world is going on? And what is the purpose of this all? I'm talking about real reality, ultimate reality, not just the reality that we can see and, and touch and smell and hear, but what I'm talking about is the greater reality that even exists behind all that. I mean, think about it. What, what better time to sort of, you know, peek behind the veil into ultimate reality to see what's really going on, what better time to do that than a time where everyone is trying to figure out what is going on? Everyone's got different opinions on what's happening right now and how to fix it. And these are worthwhile conversations to have, but regardless of where we end up in those conversations, it just kind of leaves us with that deep itch, right? This deep itch that we feel like needs to be scratched. So I think it's a great gift for us to see in the book of Revelation unveiled reality. The book of Revelation is a gift for us. I mean, literally, Revelation in the original Greek is apocalypsis, which means sort of like unveiling. And so it's a gift for us to see what's going on behind the curtain on the stage of the world to say, what is the meaning of this all? To, to answer the question, where is it that we find hope? Where is it that we're ultimately headed? And so we find ourselves looking at Revelation chapter 8, where the symbols continue, and we're looking at the, the final of the seven seals. If you remember, we saw that, that the Apostle John, who is the writer of the book of Revelation, who receives this vision from God, and he sees this scroll in the heavens held by someone sitting on the throne of God. And that, 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 that seal, that scroll rather, uh, contains the purpose of all humanity, the purpose of all history. The hope of the world, the hope of the universe is contained in that scroll. And yet it's got these seven seals and John weeps because he's like, man, who can, who can undo these seals? Who can cut them open? What hope do we have to have the contents of this scroll released? And then he's comforted and being told like, hey, look, there is one who's worthy to, be, to open the scroll, to open these seals. He's like the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he appears like a lamb that was slain. He's talking about Jesus, the great lion and lamb of the scriptures. And today's text brings us to the final seal, the seventh seal, which is going to transition us now to the seven trumpet judgment. We're only looking at five verses this morning. It's a short passage, but it's one that we can unpack a lot out of. 
It's going to leave us thinking about the greatness of God and the reality that, that he is not absent, that he hears our prayers and he acts in history. And so that's the big idea that I'm just giving you on the front end here is that God is great and he is not absent. He hears our heartfelt prayers and he acts. He acts. So let me pray for us and then we'll get into the text. God, yes, you truly are great. You are good and great. You're a God who's so much bigger than us, so much more transcendent than us, so much more other than us. You are holy, holy, holy as the heavenly beings sing. But as holy as you are, as different from us that you are, as perfect as you are and as imperfect as we find ourselves, you are not absent. You came in your son Jesus. You reveal yourself in the scriptures. And you send your Holy Spirit so that we might understand. And so, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see that the God we worship is great. He hears our prayers and he acts for our good and his glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Here's point number one. In this text, we see that we should listen to the silence of heaven. How do you do that? How do you listen to silence? Listen to the silence of heaven. You'll see what I mean in a minute here, but in verse one, it says, when the lamb, speaking of Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now remember, John's receiving this vision, right? And, and each of these pictures of the lion and the lamb and the seals and stuff, it, 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 it all means something symbolically. It all illustrates something about the character and nature of God and how he works throughout history. And here in verse 1, we're told that when the Lamb, capital L Lamb, which tells us that this is still speaking of Jesus, when he, in this vision that John has, he opens the seventh seal, and at that point, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a long time, but I want you to think of how jarring how disrupting, how almost unwelcome that silence must have hit, especially considering the context that we find this verse. Because over the last two chapters, what we've seen is that the great Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when he removed each seal from the scroll, we see the stage of history unfolding. We see symbolically everything that's happening between Jesus' ascension after he resurrected from the dead to the time that he's going to return, which we don't know the day or the hour that'll be. But that, that gap that we find ourselves living in right now, the, that gap that the reformers found themselves living in a few hundred years ago, that gap that the early church, the first century church that John was writing to, they all exist. The, the church throughout history, the New Testament church existed from that time, uh, 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 from the time of the ascension of Jesus up until now, and it continues on. And it's during that time that uh, the events of the seals are happening. 
The first four seals, we saw the four horsemen. You remember that? The four horsemen that appear in the sky from the four corners of the world. And then in the next seal, we, we saw, or in the, the fifth seal, we saw the cries of the souls that were under the altar, the cries of the martyrs who've been persecuted and killed for their faith throughout history, right? And so you got this like chaotic scene, vision that John's seen, these four horsemen, then the cries coming up from under the altar. And then with the... Sixth seal, you see the terror of the world when judgment day is going to come, when everybody's going to hide themselves from the face of God, uh, trying to escape his judgment, but there is no escape. And then last week, when we looked at all of chapter 7, we see that there was this pause, this interlude between the breaking of seal number 6 and what we're going to look at with the seventh seal. And that pause or interlude wasn't a quiet pause, but it was one that was filled with proclamation. It was filled with words talking about how God's faithful are sealed and protected from harm. How those who are faithful to God are going to escape the judgment. And in that pause, we saw a glimpse uh, just uh, uh, where we were encouraged. uh, Like anybody who's ever been persecuted got this glimpse where they could be encouraged, where they saw this vision of a huge crowd celebrating God's victory and their own deliverance at the end of time. How God was always looking after them. He'll continue to always look after them. And it's at this point, at this point at the seventh seal, that we might expect something like even more amazing to show up, right? We'd expect something more spectacular than, than what we saw in the last two chapters. Something greater than the display of worship and praise that was circling the throne of God. All these events, events happening as each seal is opened. But instead we get this unexpected hush. In chapter 8, verse 1. <laughs> Picture that. You got the horsemen. You got the cries of the martyr. You got the judgment from God. People are screaming. They're terrified. They're hiding. You got thunder, lightning, earthquakes, noise, worship, and then it all stops. Silence. Hear that silence. Listen to it. It's awkward, right? It's unsettling. Like, how long can you stand the silence? Like, I see some of you smirking, like, you know, like my wife's like biting her nails. She's like, will somebody please say something, right? Like, she does this thing where she can't stand silence in a room, right? Where uh, my wife, Alyssa, where, where she, what, what she doesn't understand is how like two men can get together for fellowship and just sit in silence for like 30 seconds and then have it be totally fine. Right? Uh, she doesn't get that, right? Doesn't matter what we're doing, right? We could be hanging out, we can be you know, talking, we might be playing a game, watching a game, smoking cigars, just be, we might just be sitting there in silence. And it doesn't matter, like she could be in the other room, have her hands totally full. And she'll, when she hears like this long silence, when she knows I have like uh, guys over, she'll like drop whatever she's doing, she'll run over, she'll kick down the door and go like, hey, uh, so, uh, uh, so how are your wife and kids doing, right? Like she just can't stand the silence. Sometimes, sometimes silence speaks louder than a shout. 
There's an English journalist named Bernard Levin. He's one of the greatest and what, like journalists, uh, 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 like out in the. Uh, he wrote for like the Times in the UK and and, and and stuff. He's a celebrated journalist, but one of his greatest loves was music, especially classic operas like Mozart or his favorite Schubert. And so, Levin, being this like very versatile journalist, uh, he would jump on any opportunity he could to see a classical opera. He would, he would sign up to be like, I want to review that opera. And even if, even if like, they didn't want to review on it, like, he would still try and find a way to make it to the classical opera. And so he was like, this, this guy was, he went to so many operas, like one after the other. He was no stranger to the sound of thunderous applause. He was no stranger to the sound of a standing ovation or the celebration of an audience where everyone's cheering and clapping and whistling and yelling after an amazing performance. But on one occasion, on one occasion, he went to a performance of um, one of Schubert's classic opera numbers. And it was sung by one of the most famous opera singers of his day. And he wrote about how the performance was so powerful. It was so mesmerizing. It was so transcendent, so like otherworldly, that after the last note was sung and the lights dimmed down to say that the act is over, the audience just sat there in silence for a while. Eventually, people started getting up slowly. He said he talked about how you could you could hear a cough and a sniff from like the other side of the concert hall because it was so silent. People just got up slowly and started leaving quietly. Levin wrote about how he said the spell of music was so powerful that nobody dared break it with mundane clapping. I think moments like that are super rare. But in a world like ours, and in a time like ours that's constantly filled with noise, noise of our notifications on our phones, noise of voices, noise of opinion and hot takes rummaging through our head, In our noisy world, moments like that remind us that silence isn't just the absence of sound. Silence can be a profound and jarring experience that can help us pick up on certain parts of reality that are usually drowned out by the noise. Help us appreciate things and see things and acknowledge things that maybe we didn't see before, and that's what verse one is doing for us here. This passage, written by John, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, the mention of silence is there to make you feel something.
to make you perhaps moved by something, to feel something about the awe and the dread that is right around the corner with the seven trumpets. In many Old Testament texts, silence is a precursor to, to judgment. Like in Zechariah 2, right? The calm before the storm. And the scene of silence here in Revelation 8, chapter 1, the scene of the silence is not some packed concert hall, but it's even bigger than that. The heavens itself. Heaven itself is the scene. Silent for 30 minutes. You see, the mighty acts of God have such a profound effect on the heavenly beings that fill up the heavens that at this point, not a word is spoken by them. Not a song is sung by them. Not a wing is flapped by one of these creatures, but just this unsettling, anxious anticipation that leads us into the next few verses. Number two, I want you to lift your voice. See that you can lift your voice in prayer with the rest of the faithful. Number two, lift your voice in prayer with the rest of the faithful. We see this in verse two through four, where John continues describing his vision. And he says, then, after that long, awkward silence, then he says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. You know what a censer is? If you've ever been to like, uh, like, a, a, like a high church uh, sort of uh, context, like the Anglican church or Orthodox or Roman Catholic church, you get, you, you, they've got this, this thing that hangs on a chain and, and they like, you know, like twirl it around like a, almost like a, what do you call that? Pendulum, um, right? They twirl around and like smoke comes from it and you're like, what, what is, like that's a, that's a sensor. And so it's got like incense and, and smoke and, and things like that. Um, and so this, this angel came, stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now, what is going on here in these verses? We see seven angels standing before God, and seven trumpets are given to them. Why, why seven trumpets? Why seven trumpets? You see, back then, trumpets were not just instruments, right? Like back then, trumpets didn't exist just to add color to like your favorite classical piece or Jaws ensemble or like ska hit, right? Like trumpets weren't for musical enjoyment back then. They were used for announcement. They were used to, for proclamation, to declare something. And so when, when, when a trumpet would blare, it was usually to, to rally a nation to battle. Or we read in the Old Testament how it was also used to, to celebrate the coronation of a king. It also marked 
great celebrations, like, like the Jubilee in the Old Testament. And it was also used in divine judgment. Like in the book of Joel, Jeremiah, Hosea, like other, other places in the Old Testament, you see again and again that it's, their trumpets are used as a precursor for divine judgment. Now these trumpets, they had a rich Old Testament tradition tied to the idea of judgment. Uh, for example, when, when Joshua led Israel into the land of promise, their path was blocked by the fortified city of, of Jericho. Right? A lot of you guys remember that, 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 that famous like, story, Old Testament story about the walls of Jericho, where God commanded uh, his, his people to march around the city walls for six days. And while they were marching around, seven priests of Israel would sound the trumpets as, as they went around and around for six days. And on the seventh day, after their seventh lap, the people were told to shout, like a loud shout, and the walls collapsed. The walls of Jericho fell down. Judgment came upon Jericho before getting in the way of God's people. And in a great sense, we see a similar thing happening here in Revelation 8. In a similar way, God here, he wants to bring his people home. His people, his elect throughout history, the people that are his, the ones he's chosen, the one that he adores, the one he cherishes, the ones that he loves, the ones that he's died for, the ones that he sent Jesus for, the ones that he extends his unfailing mercy and love to, his undying faithfulness those that he has wooed, those that he has pursued again and again and again, despite their mishaps, despite their failings, despite their backslidings, he pursues them faithfully. He wants to bring, and, and here in Revelation 8, he, we see his posture. He wants to bring these people home. He's tired of the world being affected by sin and evil and suffering. He's tired of people having to experience the sting of death. He wants to bring us home, but first, all evil, sin, and death that has been getting in the way must be destroyed. And so God is encircling the stronghold of his enemies in Revelation 8. And those trumpets start blaring. And when the last trumpet sounds, the imperfections of the world will give way. Heaven and earth will meet. And the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of God and of Christ. Now, we don't know, back to Revelation 8, verse 2, we don't know who those seven angels are. But we do know that they're significant. He calls them the angels. And that they're there to execute another wave of judgments through these heavenly trumpets, right? Like the, the seals that we saw uh, being cut open uh, so far have, have contained various forms of judgment, but the focus has been on preserving God's people and protecting them. 
So here, we're gonna see parallel seven judgments through these seven trumpets, but now the focus is gonna be on God's enemies. But first, I want you to notice what it says about these seven trumpets. The scripture says that they were given to these seven. The seven trumpets were given to these angels. And so while the angels are the agents of God's judgment, you need to understand that they're just acting on orders. The main actor here is God. This is God's holy judgment. And look, the Spirit has something to show us here in verses 2 through 4. The Spirit has something to show us in all of this about where our place is in all of this. Where's our place in the judgment? Where's our place in the justice of God that we long for? New Testament scholar Leon Morris points out the surprising answer to the question, what role do we have to play? He says, the saints appear insignificant to men at large. And just to be clear, when we use the word saints, we're not talking about it how saints in the way that those of us who grew up in like the Roman Catholic Church understood the word saints, where uh, if you grew up in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, you, you, you know, we think that saints were specially venerated people who, who almost got like a, uh, like a spiritual promotion of sorts, Right? Like you graduate to the level of saint? No. When, when the New Testament uses the word saint, it's talking about all Christians, everyone who belongs to Jesus throughout history. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. All right? And so Leon Moore says the saints, the Christians, appear insignificant to men at large, but in the sight of God, they matter. Even great cosmic cataclysms are held back on their accounts. And the praises of the angels give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. Now, what does that say? In other words, the great hush that silences the heavens at the opening of the seventh seal isn't just a picture of dramatic anticipation. And it is that. It is that because of what's about to happen, but it's not just that. It's also a clear display of the importance that prayer plays throughout church history. You see, before the last seal drops and before the scroll is opened, God wants us to know that the unfolding of the end of all things is going to happen by the prayers of the saints in history. Read verse 3 again with me. He says, Another angel came, stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So, so this, this angel takes a golden censer, which has two ingredients in it. On the one hand, it has special incense that comes somewhere from the heavens, all right? But on the other hand, it also contains all the prayers of the saints. Every prayer from every Christian, from every member of God's covenant promises throughout history, every prayer that's been, ever been uttered with God saying, where, 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 where the saints have said, God, where are you? When are you going to come? 
How much longer? How long, O Lord? Every time prayers like that have been uttered, the prayers of the saints have been collected. And this angel is going to come, put them in the censer, and give our prayers as an offering on the golden altar before the throne of God. Notice it says the prayers of all the saints. You ever wonder where your, where your prayers go and what happens to them? And part of your answer is right here. They go to be collected before an altar on God's throne. And what does he do with them? Well, when the time is right, he sends an angel to mix incense from heaven with those prayers. And in verse 4, it says, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And so we, we lift our voices in prayers with the rest of the faithful, knowing that our prayers are collected, knowing that our prayers are never uttered in vain, that our groanings will always be heard. And not only that, in some mysterious way, our prayers play a role in our sovereign God enacting his justice on the world. Which leads us to point number three, where we look to the God who brings justice. Look to the God who brings justice. You see, at this point, something happens that shows that the prayers of the saints are actually going to play a role in the judgment to come. Verse five says, then that angel... The angel, he took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, what's happening there? This is the judgment of God. This is the judgment of God. It's everything that we've read about from the seven seals starting over again, but from a different angle. This is the judgment of God. Now, look, I understand that, that this, this can be a difficult subject for us to, for some of us to like wrestle with, right? The judgment of God. And, and, and I, I get why some of us feel, feel tension with that. Because judgment is not, judgment is not a popular talk, topic for us to, to talk about, right? It's seen as cold, and mean and intolerant by our culture. But at the same time, at the same time in our culture, I think that if humanity took the time to look in the mirror, we would see that every single one of us, we all sit on these little thrones, rendering our own little verdicts like little judges day and night. from the way we behave on social media to the way we, you know, we, we talk about people who, like last year, were either like you, you walk in the store and you saw them wearing a mask and you made a judgment upon them, or you saw them not wearing a mask and you made a judgment upon them. 
I mean, there's not a single minute, day or night, that someone is not holding court and judging others. And often the judgments that we place against one another are unjust, they're unfair. And even more often, Christians get judged unjustly because we're seen as as weird or foolish or behind the times or unpopular. Revelation 8, though, it tells us that one day all of us little judges, all the little judges throughout the world and throughout history is going to stop their judging and stand before the capital J judge. You see, God is the one who judges rightly. He's the only one who 100% of the time judges rightly. Not me. Not you. Not anyone out there. Mere humans don't, we don't have all the facts. And we, we can't enact perfect justice, but God, he does have that information. And his justice is perfect. Look, here's why the judgment of God is good news for us. All right? Yes, it is good news for us. Believe it or not, the judgment of God is good news for us. That's because the judgment of God tells us that God cares. The judgment of God tells us, the perfect judgment of God tells us that God is fair. That he's willing to call evil, evil. Call good, good. Bring repercussions and rewards accordingly. It tells us that God, uh, that all the choices that we make matter to God. It tells us that God takes evil and sin seriously. The very things that broke our world into pieces, evil, sin, and death. The judgment of God tells us that they will not have the last word. God does. And the point of that censor the point of that censor in the hands of that angel is to show us that God he answers our cries for justice. They don't land on deaf ears. They don't collect dust, our prayers don't collect dust on a, sh- on a shelf, never to be taken up again. Oh, they're being answered in real time, and they're going to be answered at the beginning of the end. The poet Ger- George Herbert calls it reversed thunder. Reverse thunder, when judgment comes in response to the collective human cry, when we pray, how long, O Lord? God will answer that prayer. He'll answer it perfectly. He'll answer it fairly. He'll answer it justly. And it'll begin from this angle with the seven trumpets. And we're gonna start reading more about the seven trumpets next week. 
But before I close, I want to answer the question, how do we respond? How do we respond to this passage? I see three ways that we can respond to this this passage. Number one, we rest in his wisdom. We rest in God's wisdom. You see, our lives, our lives and our existence are meant to reflect the knowledge of the coming judgment of God. And so in other words, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we carry ourselves around others, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we treat others, we're to do so in a way that reflects that we know that God's perfect justice is going to come. And so that means we live like evil, sin, and death will not have the last word because we know that they won't. We can rest in his wisdom. Number two, we're to do what Jesus said to do in Luke 18, to always pray and do not lose heart. The truth that our prayers are stored on the altar of God and then eventually utilized as fuel for God's perfect justice in answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. That is good cause for us to pray and when we pray, to trust him and not lose heart. Lastly, we're to embrace the one who received judgment in our place. Embrace the lion and the lamb who received judgment in our place. Embrace the one who endured the punishment of God in the place of those of us who rightly deserve it. All of us. You know who rightly deserves the judgment of God? It's not just the people out there. It's not just the people that we don't like. It's not just the people that, that, that you know, ups, upset us or, or peeve us or who unlike us. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's us. Those who rightly deserve the judgment of God are those who are sinners by nature and choice. Chumps like me. And like you. You see, when those trumpets blare, the judgments they bring will be terrifying. They'll be terrifying. But God is patient. He's patient and kind. He's merciful. And the trumpet sound is not just a warning. It's also an invitation to repent and believe. And if we do repent and believe, if you give your life over to Jesus, placing not just your life, but your entire eternity in his nail-pierced hands, then the trumpet will no longer be a sound of despair, but a sound of victory. And you can claim that song 
that we sing, that our God is the lion, the lion of Judah, who could open those scrolls. He's roaring in power. He's fighting our battles. Our God is the lamb, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains. And every knee, every knee will bow before him. Either in terror or despair, or in gratitude and victory. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.